This is episode 10 of the Next Year Now podcast. The term for this science, which is, is a bit newer, is nutrigenomics, which essentially means that food does not just contain calories, it contains information. And it's important information that's communicating very specific things. So different biochemical responses in the body, different hormones, neurotransmitters, and immune messengers. Welcome to the Next Year Now podcast with Tom Hefner. Tom believes that if you really want to thrive at work and in life, then every day, purposeful habits and practices are vital. The Next Year Now podcast will not only help you identify and integrate these habits into your daily life, but also bring you key insights and lessons from some of the most successful people in their fields. And here is your host, Tom Hefner. Hello and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you thrive at work and in life. The topic of habits and practices is always front and center in our discussion, but we also explore how we use these habits and practices to improve our personal development, productivity, creativity, health and well-being, business and entrepreneurship. Today will be one of the most practical episodes ever. You and I get to learn from Kaylee Place, a nutrition and wellness expert in New York City. Her ideas and solutions for how we can improve our diet and well-being are going to radically change your lifestyle. In our conversation, I'll be asking Kaylee about the number one question to consider before making any nutrition, wellness, and lifestyle changes. The cultural traps and environmental obstacles preventing us from flourishing and taking time to eat better. The most effective habits and practices of good nutrition, eating, and wellness, including a morning ritual everyone should be doing right now, and plenty of other key insights and practical lessons. Kaylee Place is a positive psychology and wellness coach, yoga instructor, and meditation teacher in New York City. Since 2010, she has helped thousands of individuals build flourishing lives by employing scientifically proven methods from positive psychology, nutritional science, the contemplative traditions, and mind-body medicine. Kaylee completed her master's in applied positive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. Her research focused on how an inner dialogue that is harsh and critical versus an inner dialogue that is kind and supportive affects resilience, health, and well-being. Kaylee is a sought-after speaker and workshop facilitator for businesses, hospitals, and schools. Her expertise spans a variety of topics, including mental resilience, meditation, nutrition, motivation, and happiness. Kaylee, thank you for joining us today, and welcome to the show, my friend. It's great to be here. You know, one of the topics listeners ask me about the most when it comes to the podcast is nutrition and wellness. That seems to be an area where people really struggle with their everyday purposeful habits and practices. And because what we eat has such an enormous impact on our well-being, I thought we should really focus on how we can improve our nutrition and well-being habits. That is what so many of us are really interested in. But before we dive into that, I'd love for us to get to know my friend Kaylee a bit better. Kaylee, describe your childhood. What was it like growing up? So I'm from a large Irish Catholic family. Um, I'm the (laughs) oldest of five. And life in our household was chaotic and also um, very fun most of the time. Um, (laughs) And I think what 
probably stands out the most around my childhood is I, um, I was a gymnast. I started when I was five and it became my life quite quickly and a way of, of really finding mastery and achievement. And the, the trouble with gymnastics is it ramps up quite quickly. So by the time mm. you're, you know, 10, 11, 12, training 20, 30 to 40 hours a week. And so my childhood was unique in that by the time I was in eighth grade, I was going to school half time and really uh, living most of my days at the gym. <laughs> and then gymnastics had a lot of benefits in terms of developing self-efficacy and confidence in my ability to set goals and achieve great things. One of the, the downsides of the sport was that I developed a really harsh inner critic where gymnastics, good enough is not ever good enough. And a slight bend of the knee is the difference between winning or not placing. So my standards of what I needed to do to be worthy were quite high, which eventually then led to stress and anxiety that manifested as irritable bowel syndrome and really became sort of something I had to look at and explore later on in, in my college years. How did that experience shape your work and your pursuit of helping others to improve their well-being and nutrition? I would say that it really came to form everything that I do today because after I left the sport, the harsh inner critic followed me into my academic life and I achieved at high levels through high school and college. And by the end of my senior year of college, I was really struggling with irritable bowel syndrome. And it's a digestive disorder that can have many different components. Food is often one of them. Many people might have a intolerance or an allergy to, to something that they're eating regularly. And so I really started to explore how is what I'm eating affecting this. For the most part, however, um, in my case of IBS, it was stress. And so learning how my thoughts and feelings are affecting my body's ability to properly digest food and really affecting every system of the body. And so this intersection of how we care for our bodies through physical means like nutrition and movement and rest. I had to learn how to rest. Sort <laughs> <laughs> of yoga, meditation, and, and then the ways we're caring for ourselves internally. What is our inner dialogue? And what is our metric for what it means to be a valuable person? And we know that our thoughts affect the involuntary nervous system more than any other, any other thing we can do. So this intersection of how the mind and body impact each other really became my really life's purpose um, and, and joy. And that led to exploring this intersection, both through schooling and nutrition, positive psychology, the contemplative traditions, uh, and through finding healing in my own life, it's hard not to want to share that. <laughs> yeah. Anyone who will listen to you. <laughs> so. Yeah. <laughs> so how long, how long did that take to, to manifest itself or how long did that take to find your way through yoga, through meditation and through good nutrition? Ah, uh, I will say 
I mean, it's funny. It's a question I'm often asked a lot, uh, especially around working with anxiety is how long till you found relief. Mm-hmm. And I think for me changing, I'm someone who can self-regulate very well. So changing my food was you know, challenging in that I had to develop a new plan and change my environment. But I, I did that pretty quickly. What took longer was really learning how to work with these well-worn thoughts and recognize that a thought is just a thought and maybe it's not true. And how can I respond to myself with, with kindness and with a really warm, tender inner tone versus the tone of the elite athlete that says you should just be able to get this together and carry on. So I would say there were different time frames, but it's been, um, I'd say the height of really struggling with, with IBS to when I started to really find symptomatic relief was probably about six to nine months. And then, and then really finding a place of deep inner contentment, is, is a journey that I will be on my whole life, but I will say probably took about a year and a half of real committed, committed practice through meditation, through yoga, um, and through self-study and, and reading. I mean, I wanted to know what every tradition had to say about human suffering and this pursuit of well-being. So from Western psychology to Buddhism to the Sufi poets to the yogis, I mean, I just find this quest for for, for well-being and a meaningful life fascinating. Hmm. And we have so many different tools from different traditions. And um, I, I love science and I love research. <laughs> And so I like to experiment on myself and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> see what happens. I think it's a really important point to, to highlight, though, for us, because it's so easy, especially in an instant gratification society, to say, oh, this is what I need to do. Just go out and do it. And I think it's, you know, it's refreshing and kind of, you know, a, a good reminder that, oh, here's somebody like Kaylee who is an expert in this area. And guess what? Like she didn't do it instantaneously either. And so we should adjust our expectations. Like it takes time to make meaningful change. It takes time to get better. So with that said, what advice do you have for us to help us be patient with the process or be patient with healing ourselves? Yeah, I think one really important process that is often skipped when approaching lifestyle change is first sitting with the why like in the biggest sense of why do I want to make change in my life? What is that really about? Which ultimately leads to the bigger question of what really matters. Mm. And in a culture where we lead such busy, such fast paced lives, it's really easy to never sit with that question. We have a list of all the things we need to do today and self-care might get put on that list. And then we've got this, you know, harsh inner critic that's saying you should do this or you're not a good person or you're failing or whatever. And a much more powerful motivation is to sit with that deeper question of what really matters. What is a meaningful, dignified human life to me? I have a short time on this planet And so when I work with clients, we spend first few sessions really exploring 
this question. And most people, when they come into my office, I work in New York City and really um, successful, very busy professionals. And when asked that question, what really matters, I often will get a blank stare and sort of this shameful, I don't really know what matters. (laughs) I know what I need to get done. And so sitting with that question for a little while, and if, if you're not working with a coach, one way of doing that is by journaling, just taking out a pen to say what really matters. Another way of thinking about that is when I am the best possible version of myself, what do I put my energy towards? What do I cultivate? What does that feel like? What does that look like? So then from that place, we can arrive at some tangible behaviors that would support us in moving towards that or honoring that intention. It's a good segue. Before we jump into some of those tangible kind of habits you were talking about that that will help us boost our well-being and improve our nutrition and things like that, I want to take some time to ground us in your idea of well-being. What does well-being mean to you, Kaylee? Yeah, I, I, I like that you asked that question um, and the question of both well-being and flourishing. And well-being for me is really a state of deep satisfaction or deep contentment with yourself and with your life situation. Um, so it requires a degree of inner and outer harmony. And then the question of flourishing, I think, is a bit different from well-being. I think flourishing really requires wisdom because inherent in human life is imperfection is a body that will age is kids who will get sick is the loss of a job and this ability to meet the shared human experience which is one of imperfection and create meaning through our hardship is really what I think distinguishes someone who has the capacity to flourish in life because we can't just spend our lives avoiding the hard stuff or crossing our fingers or holding our breath that it won't happen because at some point it will. And there's a saying in the Buddhist tradition that I love, which is no mud, no lotus. And so <laughs> from, from the mud through the hardship is where the lotus blooms is born. And sitting with those bigger questions and those harder questions and finding meaning in them, I think is the most challenging and noble thing we can do as, as human beings. And I think it then leads to a life with great meaning and purpose, a life with relationships that really matter and an engagement with life, a a desire to pursue things that we care about and and then yes positive emotion will emerge from that sort of sort of wisdom you know so many people i know they kind of just let life happen to them rather than think about it the other way of how can i have more control about my life how can i think about these bigger things these mean, you know big meaning purpose of life why is it that we don't do that i mean you're, you you from what you just said it's like makes perfect sense to me. But obviously, many of us don't do that. The clients that you see don't do that. So why is that, you think? I think our culture sets us up unfairly. We're, We're really led to believe that with enough hard work and enough effort, you can have happiness. And so if there is an amount of suffering or something you don't like, you just need to work a little bit harder or buy that next thing or somehow rather than look at it and integrate 
challenge and hardship into your definition of what a meaningful life is. It's your job to avoid it mm-hmm. and to somehow eradicate it. So I think it's built into our cultural script, this belief that if I just keep going and keep trying hard, I won't have to experience those hard things versus the perspective of this is the truth of the human experience. How do I get comfortable with it and how do I make meaning in it? And so I think, one, we don't even have a a shared way of grappling with these questions unless you're in a master's of positive psychology program or sitting in a coach's office or a therapist's office or if you're in, you know, a religious tradition, we're not talking about these things in a in a in a comfortable way. And then and then the power of just being too busy, right? Like paying our bills, taking care of our kids. At the end of the day, pondering these questions takes energy and takes support and um, I think it's something that's not valued in our, in our culture in a mainstream way. There's pockets for certain. So it does take finding a way of creating that space for yourself. Fair enough. So let's segue to specific habits and practices. Kaylee, take a few moments to reflect on your experience coaching people on good nutritional habits, uh, wellness practices, yoga, even talking to them about, you know, kind of meaning and purpose. Where should we begin when we start out on this journey to thrive more in life uh, and why? And I know you talked about like the first few sessions were are, are geared towards, you know, kind of uh, thinking about the big questions, but let's assume that we've kind of made it past that point. Where then from a kind of a practical standpoint, should we begin? Mm-hmm. From a practical standpoint and What's challenging about this question is I would I would say you have to start in the domain where someone feels a sense of curiosity or a sense of calling, um, because, as you know, there is so much information around helpful habits out in the world. Yeah. And we can know all the information, but unless we value it, it's not going to stick. We might do it for a few days. So. I do think it's important for anyone who's seeking lifestyle change to really consider where do I feel a sense of excitement? Is it around nutrition? Is it around moving my body? Is it around improving my relationships? Is it around cultivating uh, greater mental resilience and reducing stress? Because whatever domain you start in, in my experience, it leads to this cascade effect of, wow, I can affect change. And now I want to explore this other aspect of myself. So there are these in coaching, we talk about uh, stages of readiness to change. And until someone, so there's the stage of pre-contemplation, you're not thinking about a change at all. (laughs) Then there's contemplation where you're like, "Hmm, you know, maybe (laughs) people did this nutrition plan and he's feeling really good. I'm kind of curious about it, but you're not really ready to start changing your life. And then there's preparation where you're like, yeah, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really make a plan and, and get some healthy recipes out and do some meal prep. And so you're, you're in this stage of preparation. And then there's action phase where you're doing something different. And they are discrete stages of change. And so we have to be honest about where we are mm. before taking on any new habit. So that said, my 
the habits that I found most helpful in my own life and with my clients in affecting the greatest change. Um, the first one is a morning ritual. So right when we wake up to take some time, whether that's in meditation or prayer or journaling, just to be with yourself and to think about how do I want to approach this day? What's important? And that pause is profound because otherwise the alarm goes off. We're checking email. Life sort of slaps us in the face and we're really running on automatic pilot. So whatever you can do in the morning to ritualize a time of pause and reflection for yourself will profoundly affect whatever changes it is you want to make in your life. Okay. The second one would be before eating, before putting anything in your mouth, <laughs> using that as an opportunity for a, um, for a pause. So taking three slow, deep breaths, feeling yourself in your body, asking how hungry am I? Just checking in with body cues. And the last part would then be gratitude of a moment to recognize the many hands that were involved in this food being in front of you, the opportunity to eat. I've found that it's really hard to abuse something if we're grateful for it. Hmm. I never thought about that. I know it's, it's funny that, uh, that you say that. I mean, recently I had GI surgery and one of the things that, uh, was a side effect of that was I had to stop and kind of slow down my eating, my chewing, um, and even the dietitian talked about like s- sit and think about, you know, how hungry you are. Just some of the things that you just said. Um, and now I'm just connecting what she said with what you said. And now it makes more sense. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's incredible how our culture we're we're in a way sort of in this anxious, obsessive state with food. We think about it. It's off limits. It's right. It's wrong. It's moral. It's immoral. And then we don't actually sit down and have the experience of eating, which is, a physical experience. It's embodied. Uh, we eat really quickly and we know that a stressed body doesn't metabolize food, um, as well as a body that's relaxed. So we actually are processing our food differently based on whether we're in a stress state or a calm state and slowing down the breath is the fastest way to move the body from that sympathetic nervous system activation into parasympathetic. So then blood is going to your digestive organs and it raises your metabolism. Mm. So it's it's a really good practice, many levels. All right. So at least I'm I'm on the right, uh, the the right journey there for thanks to my dietitian. (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) You know, if you struggle to eat well consistently, or maybe you struggle to keep weight off, then I really want you to pay close attention to this next question for Kaylee. It's really going to help you turn your struggles around. And Kaylee, one of the challenges of eating well and making good nutritional choices is that there is so much information out there. You know, when I try to improve my own dietary choices, I often feel just incredibly overwhelmed by all the information out there. You know, should I go paleo? Should I go vegan? Should I embrace a Mediterranean diet? I don't know. Like everyone is pitching something different and talking about amazing benefits of this diet or that or CrossFit, you know, and doing this diet. So please tell me, like, how do we, what are some ways that we can navigate this maze of nutritional decisions? Great question. Uh, yeah, we're, as I mentioned, we are in a state of food anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> And quite frankly, chaos. So 
what I, what I will say, and it's, it's kind of funny when someone finds out that I do nutrition coaching at a party or at a dinner party or something, I will sometimes get cornered with this <laughs> frantic look of like, what do I eat? <laughs> I, think, I think they're hoping I have some super sexy herb to offer or like <laughs> bizarre meal timing or something. Yeah. <laughs> But what I do have is super sexy science. And so what we do know, what we can agree on is eating real whole food. And so the, the term for this science, which is, is a bit newer, is nutrigenomics, which essentially means that food does not just contain calories, it contains information. And it's important information that's communicating very specific things. So different biochemical responses in the body, different hormones, neurotransmitters, and immune messengers telling you to either feel hungry or feel full, Mm. to increase inflammation or to decrease inflammation, to store fat or to burn fat. So food is quite literally communicating with your cells. And the biggest mistake I see in my coaching is this belief of a calorie is a calorie is a calorie. So I just need to restrict calories and exercise more and I will lose weight and be healthy. And that can work for a short period of time, but ultimately it will fail and it also will not lead to vibrant health. So real whole food, which is to say as close to nature as possible, contains information that your body knows how to respond to and signals messages of health. So what I like to tell clients is if this was recently growing out of the ground or hanging on a tree or running through green pastures, (laughs) swimming through clean water, uh, it's a good choice. Mm. If it came in a package, not a good choice. Not a good choice. A processed carbohydrate, if it's a processed cheap vegetable oil, if it contains sugar, um, that is an added sugar, it actually is communicating harmful messages to the body Mm. and can, in the long run, really cause harm. So that said, my approach is not one of deprivation and denial because that doesn't work. So to say, oh, I'm just never going to have a chocolate chip cookie again, and I can't eat this, and I can't eat that. What I really work with people around is this concept of crowding in. And so rather than wake up in the morning with, "Uh uh-oh, I have to avoid all my favorite foods today sort of mentality, Mm -hmm. to wake up and think, how am I going to get in all the essential nutrients that my body needs and my brain needs quite literally to function optimally and to feel well. And it's a lot of food. We need a lot <laughs> of vegetables containing antioxidants that are, you know, I, I, and, and these concepts I think too are often, I find them really exciting. And if you're reading a list of do's and don'ts in a, in a nutrition book or a magazine, it's not very exciting. But when you think about what an antioxidant does, it's actually stopping free radicals from degenerating your cells and your DNA. Like, that's really exciting to look at a plate of vegetables and think, oh my gosh. Like, I've got a superpower here. (laughs) I'm stopping oxidation right now. (laughs) 
So how do I get in five to seven servings of vegetables a day? That's a lot of food. How do I get in three or so servings of fruit a day? How do I get in enough healthy fat? And this is something that is a major problem in our culture is this fear of fat. And unfortunately, this was started by the nutrition research um, years ago. And now there's a big, uh uh-oh, well, that was not a good thing to be professing. We actually need fat. It makes us feel satiated. Our cell membranes are made of fat. And it's the right kind of fat. So it's things like avocado and nuts and seeds and fish oils and uh, did I say olive oil? Olive oil and olives and and quite frankly, um, animals that are eating grass, their fat is very healthy for us. It contains more omega-3 versus omega-6s. So the problem with our industrialized meat production has led to animal fat having higher omega-6 because they're eating genetically modified corn and soy versus their natural diet. So going out of your way to find pastured animal products is really worth your buck. And similarly with, with your dairy products going out of your way to find pastured um, organic dairy is really, really worth it. So, The simple answer to your question is if we can move towards a natural diet of whole foods, we naturally will start to not crave the processed foods because the processed foods actually are messing with the the brain-gut dialogue that's going on. It messes with our hormones so that we can no longer trust our feelings of of hunger. There was a study done at Harvard around the effects of sugar on the body and brain. And the question being, we know sugar is emotionally quite addictive (laughs) after a long day. It's yeah, I think, I think I'd really like those cookies. (laughs) The chocolate looks pretty tasty right now. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But the question of, is it biologically addictive was, was what this research was looking at. And so what they did was they had a milkshake engineered to taste the same and it had the same profile of carbohydrates, protein and fat, but one would spike your blood sugar and your insulin and the other wouldn't. Okay. It was a a low glycemic response. And so it was 12 overweight men in a randomized blind crossover study. And so they took four measures. They measured blood sugar, insulin, hunger, and then activation of the nucleus accumbens in the brain, which is the pleasure center of the brain. And when activated, it makes us feel good. We get a rush of dopamine that then drives us to seek more of that feeling. So to do the behavior again, and it's associated with classic addictions like gambling and drug addiction. So they, they were really curious what happens in that part of the brain. So milkshake number one is low glycemic does not spike your, your blood sugar. So they looked at what happened for these, for these men and they reported feeling full. They reported feeling satisfied, um, not hungry. And the nucleus accumbens activation was not was down significant milkshake. Number two, high glycemic. When they then measured, uh, they saw spikes in blood sugar, spikes in insulin. The men reported feeling 
feeling hungry again. And the nucleus accumbens was lit up like a Christmas tree, (laughs) which led the authors to say, wow, sugar is as addictive as cocaine and heroin. Sugar is biologically addictive. And if you think about it, it really makes sense because I've never had a problem with overeating or binge type eating on a nice plate of broccoli, wild rice, chicken, and mushrooms. Like there's this natural part in your brain that says like, we've had enough. Okay. Um, that's enough avocado, Tom. Uh, enough. <laughs> yeah, right? uh, even, even fruit that has natural sugar in it. I've, it's, it's rare that we are, find someone struggling with like, oh my gosh, I just ate my 15th apple. <laughs> right. right? It, the, the food comes packaged with information to communicate to your brain. We've had enough versus a bag of Oreos or Doritos. I could eat those forever. And still want more. <laughs> One of my favorite memories in college is, you know, taking a sleeve of uh, Girl Scout Thin Mints and just like gobbling it down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, they're bypassing these natural regulatory mechanisms within the body. And it's obvious when you think about it that way. Um, and so changing our nutrition for weight loss and for health, it really is about moving towards these natural whole foods that our body and our brain knows what to do with. I've never, I never heard of the, uh, how did you say it? Microgenomics or the nutritional genomics? Uh, Nutrigenomics. Nutrigenomics. That's a really interesting way to think about not just food as something that you consume, but as as something that communicates with your body and having the whole foods, basically you're, you're getting better communication versus the processed foods. So that's something that I I know I will take away from this conversation to kind of help shape and direct my, my own eating. Let's, let's, let's pivot a little bit here. So we've talked about nutrition uh, and amazing stuff behind that. So thank you. But I know you're also a huge fan of yoga and the, the contemplative traditions. What role does that play in helping improve our well-being? I think it plays a profound role. (laughs) Um, Or maybe I'll say, uh, why does it play such a profound role? Yeah, well, I think it's important to know what we're up against. So we having a human brain means having a brain that evolved uh, for survival out in the, the wilderness and having a hypersensitivity to any potential sign of threat was advantageous for survival. And we still have that same brain. So in neuroscience, it's called the negativity bias, which means that our brain is preferentially scanning our environment, looking for any potential sign of threat and then reacting to that threat more strongly or that perceived threat more strongly, storing it in a deeper memory system and then coding it as our sense of self, our sense of life. So our natural state, the human mind left to its own devices is not seeing reality clearly. We're seeing a very negative, um, threat filled reality. Mm. And so to overcome that, to override that as, as one of uh, my mentors says, we're struggling from an evolutionary hangover (laughs) and we're all struggling with it. So I think when we really understand that to see clearly, to experience peace and to see experience, um, the joy that is also happening from moment to moment takes a certain amount of training, training ourselves to see the world differently, 
And I think the contemplative traditions have, have codified these beautiful systems that allow us to work with our attention in, in powerful ways. And you may be familiar with this study, Tom, from it was another Harvard study looking at the human mind wandering and the conclusion being that a human mind is a wandering mind <laughs> and a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. <laughs> so to recognize that just as we need to go to the gym and move our bodies to have physical, bo- physically healthy bodies and we need to eat high quality foods to have proper functioning of our hormones and our immune systems. We also need a certain level of training our attention to have a healthy mind that's seen clearly. Nice. So you talked about the biological hangover is kind of one obstacle that we might have. If you think about your experience, what maybe is another obstacle or the most difficult obstacle besides that, that your clients might face in overcoming their, uh, as they, you know, try, try to pursue more well being in their life? The two biggest obstacles. The first one is just habit, (laughs) changing a habit, which we are part of an environment, a work environment, a family environment, social influence. So changing a behavior, you're sort of a puzzle piece in your life and you're changing the shape of your puzzle piece. So really looking at the, all the different component parts of a habit, how you want to replace the habit, the new reward, take some planning and then really thoughtful execution. So that would be the first one is just a habit. What is the cue that leads to the behavior or the routine? What is the behavior? What is the routine? And then what is the reward that comes? And how do we set in motion a new cue, a new routine, mm-hmm. a new reward? So that would be the first one. And then the second one is the self-criticism, self-doubt, the, the self-distrust that comes in when we're not successful right away or the first time that we don't meet our goal or eat the pumpkin pie when we told ourselves, you know, I'm not eating sugar right now. And so it's how do I respond to myself when I do fail in meeting a goal? What is that inner dialogue? And we know from the research that if you meet yourself with that harsh criticism and activate the stress response in the body, once you're under stress, the body reaches for whatever is going to soothe most quickly, chocolate. which is chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> Quite literally, it's get a little sugar. So really changing our inner dialogue when we face inadequacy and failure. That can be really hard to do. I mean, I think even the best of us sometimes, I was talking to Louisa Jewell about her book, Why Your Brain for Confidence. And she even talked about this turning point in her life where she took a step back to examine what she was saying to herself in some of these moments. And she said, gosh, you know, if my husband talked to me like that, if my friend talked to me like that, you know, I'd kick them to the curb. And Mm so... And I've, you know, I've had the same issues as well. I mean, or I've had those same moments where I've been very harsh. I've had that harsh inner critic and I still struggle with that sometimes. And I don't know what, what tips or strategies do you have for us to help overcome that inner critic, if you will? Yeah. And thank you for acknowledging that it's not easy and it takes both this self-awareness of 
what is my inner dialogue? I was working with a client. We started to talk about this and she was like, no, I don't, I don't think I beat myself up. And I said, okay, you know, just this next week, slow down and really pay attention to what you're saying to yourself. And she came back the next week and she was like, oh my gosh, I'm just beating myself up all the time. I didn't even realize it. <laughs> so used to it. It's so familiar. So the first step, and there's awesome research in the, in the field of self-compassion right now that's going on. And so if anyone who's listening is, is really interested in this or struggling with this, I recommend looking at Dr. Kristen Neff's work. She wrote a book called um, Self-Compassion, The Power of Being Kind to Yourself. And it, it isn't as easy as just, oh, today I'm going to be kind to myself. It's really pausing in the moment. So the first step is mindfulness of what am I saying to myself? What feelings are here? The second step is shared humanity, which is really so freeing when we remember every human being is imperfect. Mm -hmm. I'm not the first person to have struggled with wanting to affect behavior change in my life or change my nutrition, or I'm not the only parent to have ever erupted at my child or whatever it is. <laughs> that shared humanity and that, that step can really free us from the shame that keeps us repeating these then self-soothing behaviors that are destructive. Mm. So mindfulness, just noticing what's happening, shared humanity. And then the third step is self-kindness, which is, I think, the most helpful way of thinking about it is how would I respond to someone I love who is experiencing exactly what I'm experiencing right now? So for me, I think about my little sister. What would I tell her? What, would, what wisdom would I offer? What would I want for her in this moment of struggle? So taking outside of yourself can often lead to some, some kindness and some wisdom that when we're in our own story, we often can't access. Yeah, I think oftentimes it's easier to have empathy for other people than it is for yourself. So taking yourself outside of yourself and framing it within the context of somebody else becomes easier then. Yeah. So you talked about Kristen Neff's um, book, which is a great segue into kind of uh, before we wrap up here. I want to finish with one of the best parts of the show, at least I think it is. But this is where we focus on the topic of books and reading, which in my mind is a true golden habit. Kaylee, think about the books you've really loved over the years. What are the two or three books that have affected you the most and why? Such a great question. I would say in terms of starting the journey of really exploring my inner dialogue and changing my well-worn self-critical habits, the book would be Radical Acceptance by Tara Brock, who is a psychologist and Buddhist meditation teacher. And that was probably the most life-changing book I've ever read. It, I read it at a time in my life when I just didn't have language for what I was experiencing. And then in terms of um, more you know, positive psychology books, I think The Willpower Instinct by Kelly McGonigal is really helpful um, and a great read. It's, it's a fun read. And if you're sort of a neuroscience brain geek who likes to know what's happening in your brain and why, I would recommend The Buddha's Brain by Rick Hansen. Yeah, Rick Hansen's book is, is really helpful in knowing how the brain gets hijacked and why 
talks a lot about the different motivation systems within the brain, what self-criticism activates, what self-kindness activates. So if you're someone who likes the tangible of why am I going to sit and slow down my breathing for 10 minutes and practice being kind to myself? That seems like a waste of time. I know <laughs> I really needed some hard and fast research of like, oh, I'm actually exercising this part of my brain. No, I'm, I think that's important, right? I mean, yeah. it, it, we, it, if nothing else, it helps uh, develop a trust uh, that the things that we're doing are based in kind of science and uh, and not that everything has to be explained by science, but like for a lot of people, that's kind of a deal breaker for them, right? Yeah, absolutely. And then one last book. It's hard to narrow it down. <laughs> if, if you are someone who is struggling with food addiction or food obsession, I, I recommend the book. It starts with food. It's That's the name. It starts with food. And it's a really awesome, not too heady, but enough science to really inspire you to change how you're eating. So looking at the effect of food at the level of your hormones and your immune system, um, inflammation, it's a really empowering book of, wow, this is what food's doing in my body. This is why I want to make change. I always find books like that so amazing because it, it almost feels like it gives me a, maybe it's, maybe it's not, but it feels like it gives me a level of control by knowing and having the knowledge of this causes this or this does this. Like, I feel like I'm taking control back in my life a little bit more when it comes to these things. Oh, absolutely. It's so empowering to know, okay, if I'm eating salmon with olive oil and some lovely sauteed greens with bacon fat, actually reducing inflammation in my body right now and in my brain versus, oh, if I just have the low fat pizza, from lean cuisine and this whatever low fat cookie, I'm actually causing inflammation in my body. I mean, it, the difference is profound. Mm. So what about books that are, so we talked about books that you've read. What about books on your, your must read list or what books are you looking forward to reading the most and, and, and why? Yeah. So I'm almost, uh, well, today I'm 24 weeks pregnant, <laughs> so I have, to, I have to say that what I'm fascinated by right now is books around um, birth and parenting Okay. and being a positive psychology uh, junkie and lover of all things neuroscience in the brain. I am really looking forward to reading Dan Siegel's books on parenting and the developing brain and how do we provide those early experiences for a resilient brain and for a brain that has a foundation of safety and attachment to be able to think expansively and creatively and, and feel the depths of, of love and joy. So um, the whole brain child is on my bedside table right now. <laughs> All right. Well, as a father of a, a newborn girl, I'm going to be picking that one up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So last question, what are you working on now? I mean, obviously you're going to be having a baby here soon, but either now or, or somewhat near in the future, what are you working on now that you're, you're excited about? Yeah. So right now I, um, I feel most excited about actually adapting a lot of the work I already do towards parenting and working with moms and dads who are, are seeking to build happy, healthy families. 
and what are those processes, both how do we care for our own bodies, but our children's bodies and our own minds and our children's minds in the hardship of parenting. Uh, this is my first, but what I've heard from every parent I've talked to is it's the hardest thing you'll ever do. And it's the most meaning thing, meaningful thing you'll ever do. So really take True statement. Nailed it. <laughs> skill set and in creating community and dialogue around this new chapter of life that I'm I'm entering. So a book you might want to pick up as well, The Strength Switch by Dr. Lee Waters. So she's, she's in our space. Uh, she's a positive psychology uh, researcher. I think she's out of Australia, University of Melbourne with Peggy Kern, but very well-received book uh, and talks about how you can integrate character strengths into your parenting. Oh, great. I will, I will add it to my bedside table. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kaylee, that's it for me. Thank you so much for today. This was amazing. I'm taking away a bunch of really great habits and practices and insights to integrate into my own life. Wonderful. It was, it was so much fun getting to connect. You can connect with Kaylee online through a variety of ways. Her Twitter handle is at Kaylee Place and her website is KayleePlace.com. That's K-A-Y-L-E-I-G-H. P-L-E-A-S.com. All the links and resources Kaylee and I discussed today can be found at the page created just for this episode. You'll find it all at nextyearnowpodcast.com slash one zero. And finally, just a reminder, if you like the show and enjoy learning from our guests each week, please consider giving us a rating and review on iTunes. It helps us stay relevant and findable by listeners like you. That's it for today, and I'll see you next time.